Hello and welcome, everyone. Hope you're all having a fantastic week so far. Today we are here for another episode of the podcast surprise. Today we'll be covering what is lost. Super excited to be here, getting back into it, getting back into some analysis. We have uh, two versions of the podcast surprise. We have our live YouTube version, which you can check out where we do all of our live stuff. And you can come join us in the comment section in the live chat. And we also have our podcast version, which you can check out on anchor.fm with an awesome playlist of episodes. So, yeah, guys, what's going on? How's it going? Going good. Going good. So that's <laughs> just what I'm <sighs> subtly implying. Yeah. So- <laughs> Guys, what are your first impressions of these episodes? We talked about the first two really setting the tone and the atmosphere for the season. And these ones, we get some new characters. We get definitely some sorrow, especially in episode three. Some chains start to move. We get some big conversations with Vilgaforce. And we see some of the stuff we talked about earlier in the podcast with the xenophobia and the elves and all sorts of complicated scenarios really pop up in these episodes. So I guess, uh, Mikhail, we'll start with you. What were your first impressions? I thought the the series started well, had a small hiccup in episode two, but really found its feet and kept going forward. I thought really strongly. Watching them again, it's interesting. I sort of felt like the first three were a group. You have Arrival at Kimoran, and then you have the fallout of the Eskel stuff, and Siri starts her, her training in earnest. And then we're moving into another set of episodes with episode four. And towards the end of episode three, we got Vizimir and, 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 and Redania and all of that. And we started to get into some more kingdoms. And then episode four, we have someone come in with a bang, but Aziz, yeah, we start to move a little bit away from the past and we get a nice little flashback of Eskel and Geralt. It's like we go away from the past, the recent past, to the super, super ancient past instead and and towards the future. So instead of like within the last few years or last decade, it's a thousand years ago (laughs) is what becomes a little more prominent. I guess that really started right at the beginning of the season. That's obviously an ongoing thing where these things are being explored. Half the characters don't even know what's going on yet. Obviously, it's only Yennefer and, and her squad, using that term loosely, that are dealing with the Deathless Mother, but that starts to spread, right? The monsters are coming for Siri, and they're starting to try to figure that out. And like, why are they coming for her? Why are they, why are monsters attacking Care Morhen? That's the one place monsters should avoid. <laughs> That's the place that has the only people that are built to kill We're you. We're safe you know? <laughs> here. Yeah, we're safe yeah. here, all right. That's uh Right, isn't it funny? She, he says, <laughs> Harold says, you're safe here. And then, no, actually... You're probably not, and everyone else is less safe because you're there too. Because <laughs> you're a wanted figure by some pretty bad people, hmm. and bad non people too. Let's dive into it. We have uh, an episode image always with the credits before we start off the episode. The swallow, and yeah, swallow. <laughs> Zirael. Yeah, you really like. I really appreciate series intensity, right? She's. Finally, here's like a path, the path, pun intended, that she can achieve what she's been lacking, which is she's really frustrated by her prior helplessness. She wanted to help. I mean, she wanted to participate in the stopping of her home being destroyed. She didn't want to be a, a victim only. She didn't want to just run away. And she's worried about anything like that happening again. And that's something I think, despite Siri being a character who's life and upbringing and abilities are not relatable. This is wanting to 
take care of people around you, not wanting to be helpless, not wanting other people to to do that for you. That's all very relatable. And uh, so I appreciate that, like this combination of I have no idea what it's like to have these insane powers, but I do know what it's like to feel a little helpless or feel vulnerable or feel like you're not pulling your weight or what have you. It's related to her sense of loss, right? Like she lost her parents and then she loses Kalanthi and now she's in this situation where she's <laughs> the <Yeah>. only female at <laughs> Karen Moore and that's got to She's thrown into this situation with a bunch of like guys, alpha males, you know what I mean? We're talking monst- monsters. Like, let's just be real. I don't think they date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they started to rub off on her and, and Triss is like, well, don't go down that path. Like just because you're around a bunch of men doesn't mean you should stop bathing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's definitely a realization there from Syria that she starts to realize this is going to be a lot harder than I thought. Like, she's okay. well, this idealism that she has, she's thrown in with the wolves. (laughs) No pun intended. (laughs) Hey, but I love how much she embraces it. She's yeah, this is yes, I want to do this. She's you see Geralt's time to take a break. And she's like, I can do it. I can do it. I think a lot of people can relate to which is like hunger. is like a bad teacher or something like that. <laughs> you're just going to keep messing up if you keep practicing when you're hungry, which I know I have definitely done. And it's totally true. Whatever it is. Yeah. Eat first. <laughs> Isn't that how the term hangry came about? You're hungry and angry. So you should hangry. That's the that's how the word got sandwiched together. No pun intended again. <laughs> <laughs> There's a certain other show that also has a big protect small magic pairing that has had a similar line along these this concept, which was, you know, if you could just keep trying over and over without reconsidering what's going wrong, it's going to yield the same results. You can't just keep trying. You have to, like, think about what you're doing and ta- stop and learn from failure. Yeah. Failure. Is yeah, a big exactly. You can't just you can't just all the time. Yeah, <laughs> Failure is supposed to be a motivator. You're not supposed to commit the same mistakes over and over. But obviously her she her mind isn't in. We see her obviously later in the season. She's in a better mind frame because she's, you know, also not just practicing her physical skills, but also her mental mindset. And that's something that she's going to work on. But she's definitely compromised in a lot of ways. And she doesn't know why. And that's a big. Yeah. Well, she's also being hazed. Like, I I don't think we have to put it gently that particularly Lambert is being a, a total dick to her unnecessarily. And it's one thing to encourage her. I'm not saying they have to make the, the obstacle course easy for her or anything like that. That's you want to try and be a witcher. You got to do witcher things. But he's definitely making it harder with his negging of her yeah. and his it feels yeah. personal and somewhat territorial because they're like, oh, this princess is in our present. Like, she must be looking down. This kind of sense of being looked down upon. This is our place. Geralt is bringing this person here without our consent type of deal, right? And then Geralt's like, listen, this person is really important. And then Lambert's like, oh. yeah. he's like, I'm important too. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, Lambert wasn't quite as territorial about all the sex workers. that uh, <laughs> Yeah, right. Isn't that funny? I think... <laughs> They were yeah. welcome. Yeah, for some there's reason. definitely some <laughs> attitude that comes from, I think, class. I mean, you're right, they're accusing her of being a princess. But then over not too long, thankfully, Lambert gets respect for her. For one thing, she he respects that she keeps trying, that she gets hurt and just gets right back up and tries again, which is very respectable. Second of all, they have a lot in common despite the appearances, right? Like at first 
okay, you were a princess. I was probably an orphan because most of the witchers are probably orphans, right? If, if not actual orphans, then effectively orphans, right? But then that comes out. Well, yeah, she's an orphan too. She lost her family too. Sure, it was a rich family, but it's not like she has that anymore. It's not like she has all that wealth, right? It's gone. She lost more than you, arguably, right? That's a way to frame it. They didn't spend too much time on the Lambert being a jerk, but it was very effective because it really got a rise out of her. Siri, like you said, McCall, it was more than just hazing. It was beyond that. But she took it like it was hazing and responded to it. Sort of how like a good version of hazing would look. <laughs> yeah, just toughen yeah, you up. Yeah, he was trying to get her to stop. Yeah. And, and yeah, there's, yeah that's didn't. a great way to put it. Yeah, there's the hazing that is to make you tougher and there's the hazing that makes you go away. And it was definitely of the hazing to make you go away. And then it became the hazing to make you tougher as Lambert's. Oh, actually, you're pretty cool. <laughs> Never mind that stuff before. Yeah, you're tough. Everybody come look. Everybody come look. They're not really in a sense of relation because they both definitely come from two different places. Like we're talking about this kind of like class level thing here and we you know Vesemir kind of had a little talk with Siri listen I was a witcher I, I was a little boy once too and I came from the and it's a good thing that both Geralt and Vesemir have some wisdom to give Siri and they know the kind of run around of what's happening there at Karen Morton and I think Vesemir and Geralt are both perceptive of how other witchers can possibly yeah. treat someone like Siri and I think they're very observant of that that's one thing that I also noticed while well, all those kind of personalities are first clashing at Karen Morton well, it just it struck me that as against Lambert as I am and his approach, we do meet a lot more royalty in this episode. And then we spend more time with the King of Redania. And like, they're just gross, yeah. horrible people <laughs> who are literally using everyone else for their own like petty advancement and whatever. And th they're bad people. I think that gives a tiny bit more context, I guess, to Lambert's perspective on, on Siri, if this is the royalty that he's met and what he's had to deal with and she's the same thing as like yeah. a baby monster yeah because yeah. that's another that's what i was going to say you know, there's the princess aspect but then there's this uh, blaming her for eskel and and blaming for her for these other things which also comes around they also come around on that because it's, you know, it's not her fault right <laughs> she didn't ask for this it wasn't her choices that led to this and they, of course lambert straight up accuses Geralt more so than than siri to her face about it and Geralt doesn't really defend himself. He is blaming himself. He does feel guilty about it, about what happened to Eskel. And Cohen just kind of tells him to stop half-heartedly. Leave off, man. They're all hurting over it. So it's, you it's made a really tough. good point, though, Mikal, which ties into one of the, the biggest things in the series in that everybody wants Siri. And there's very few people who are willing to step up and protect Siri for what she actually is. And that's a human being, first and foremost. You know what I mean? And we talk more about the kind of power of these royals and who we see in the final episode of the season. So we'll talk more about this theme, I think. But yeah, that was a really great point, too, I think. And that there's a, a lot of things to come when it's, as far as like people abusing their power and showing how humans can be. The worst monsters. <laughs> the uh, hmm, is that what the show's about? I don't know. <laughs> we have the uh, Eskel flashback in this one that we briefly touched on it last time because it obviously attaches to everything that's so related to this. But more specifically, there's that sad line Then they're working really hard and training. And it's very much an echo of how hard series working. Right. So there's a lot of mirroring or parallels in a lot of these episodes. It's something that I think they did a very good job of. He says, then you can hang what's left of me on the medallion tree. Oh, <laughs> dang it. 
And there's the Bumblebee anecdote, which none of us could remember when, when that Bumblebee anecdote happened. Kyle, you were like, is it something more? And I was, I think it's in Blood of Elves. And then I looked it up. It's like, oh, it's actually in The Last Wish. And we're like, really? <laughs> yeah, it was really? way back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's in Last Wish. A lot of really great themes are starting to bubble in this episode that start. To, there's a lot of really great emotional tendrils because we obviously lose Eskel and we don't really get to know him that much. When you lose a Witcher and there's not that, that many left, it definitely feels like the end of an era almost. You know what I mean? It's like, whoa. Well, what we've lost one of... Good, good use of the word tendrils there. <laughs> yeah. Leshy arms or whatever. <laughs> I'm making a lot of puns today. I don't know why. It's really weird. Yeah. Just to, about the flashback, it's very sad. It yeah. it sucks. It's very upsetting, I found, to watch that, especially watching it again and knowing that we weren't even going to get any more flashbacks of oh, who this yeah. guy was, but just this like moment of real brotherhood. And it was also interesting to me that Geralt is remembering that particular conversation because he says that it's the life mission of all witchers to hunt monsters and that's it. And then our life's mission will never be fulfilled because then there won't be any more monsters. And we talk about the paradox of being a witcher. But the ironic thing is that he actually has his real destiny, his real life's mission now, which is protecting Ciri. And it's interesting to me, that's the memory that comes to mind when he's got this crossroads of choosing a different path somewhere. One thing that's super interesting is that uh, we obviously see later on in the season, Geralt is very upset because Siri makes a, a pretty big choice to follow Vesemir, right? And it's just like, Siri makes that big decision, but she doesn't really know what she's getting into. And I think Geralt realizes, hey, there's more to life for her. There's something more. That's why he tells her that in the first episode. You're much more than just this. He's letting her do her own thing, but I think he's also trying to not be too forward with it because he understands that she doesn't truly know him. Trying to push her forward a little bit without doing it too much. Yeah, when she says, I'm your destiny, he's like, well, actually, really, it should probably be framed the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. It's one of the things about this season is because we don't have the incident in the books where Geralt and Ciri meet and have an adventure together before they have established each other's identities. That kind of goes a long way toward building the emotion into the destiny, right? It's almost like an arranged marriage in a kind of way of you're into the idea and you, you have the feelings for the person that like I guess the the structure of destiny says you're supposed to have, but they there's a lot missing. There are a whole bunch of gaps in like their connections to each other, their understandings of each other, the way they can interact comfortably. Because I do feel like there's part parts of it where Geralt should be like putting his arm around her mm -hmm. and like daughter and whatever, but they're mm -hmm. not there yet. So right. it's, yeah, it's a really interesting. It's that learning to love is true. I mean, I, I, I love Mikal even though she hates Nivellen, right? <laughs> I, 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 I've learned to love that going forward. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it is that. And I think Geralt does realize that he's growing himself. He's still learning a lot too. He's never been a father before. He even told Yennefer that it would be a terrible idea for them to be parents. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, this is a pretty big step for Geralt too, if you think about it. Yeah, I think also the if we move on to the funeral, that mm. has a lot of it's really good, right? It's really well done and it's it's emotional and the leaving him for the wolves is interesting. That's a nice touch, I thought. It's something that isn't in the books as far as I can recall anyway, and I thought that was neat. I'm interested in Vesemir's role as a researcher. That wasn't really a part of the books either, as him being a 
magical detective of sorts and with Triss working with him and stuff. That stuff was pretty neat. I like that aspect of it. There's parts of that plot line that I wasn't super fond of, but just the general idea overall, I liked it. And this having him do that, I thought was fun because I like the research and we love talking about lore on the show. And that added a bit to that sphere of things. Sphere. It's a great line. <laughs> yeah. There's a great line of them talking about how this all happened and wh what these monsters are coming from. And it's so difficult to figure out. And he goes, maybe another conjunction will come along and change it all again. <laughs> God, well, that's an interesting that, thought. That, that, <laughs> careful what you wish for. That is straight <laughs> yeah. foreshadowing, my friends. It, 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 it yeah. is cool, though, because it gets other characters involved. And I've talked a little bit about this, and we'll talk more about the Wild Hunt as the season goes on. But I think that this Wild Hunt stuff it, and the conjunction of Sphere stuff, this whole mythology element, is really going to involve more characters than it did in the books, the, the Vesemirs, the, the Istrids, and other characters, because I think we're going to have this grand conjunction, this huge battle at some point. Obviously, adaptations are a little bit different, but I think it will be beneficial because some of the book characters that we love will get some more screen time, and I think it will make for more compelling TV. I think. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it allows more people to be involved in the process because there are world changing events. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought it was pretty well done too, the way it was set up with her being in the training because she's toughing it out and being real boss about it and, and not giving up. That leads to some of the elder bloods being spilled on the ground there, which becomes a plot point part of his investigations. Yeah. And the, and then where that leads, which is pretty cool. I thought that was a nice touch as well, because it, it fits in really well with what's already happening. You just have, yeah, okay, well, that is supposed to be where elder, where that grows. That's established. It's just this was they just expanded on it. The show is, well, let's have it grow a little more often under the same or similar circumstances and to have it a little more visual and to have that because that that makes sense to have it be more visual, especially because they changed that early part of Blood of Elves where they find the the Fainoeth in, in the forest and Geralt explains to Ciri some of that stuff, which I, I think that caravan scene is still going to happen because we meet the dwarves at the end of the season, but it just probably won't have the, the flowers. It's also so, symbolic um, too. Flowers growing out of snow. That's I mean, that does doesn't happen you know yeah you're right yeah <laughs> and and just on the character level again we've talked a lot about Eskel and, and that situation but the way Vesemir reacts is so genuinely sad and he has this yeah. quote about how he's doing all these experiments and he like can't rest and he can't let Eskel rest and it's he says I know you think I'm mad but I need to know what happened if it were your child you would be going crazy to figure it out what you missed what you could have done differently and mm. that is just like such a realistic thing for a parent. I've heard stories of parents of soldiers in World War One who like, what happened to their son? I don't know. He was slaughtered in a mass grave named Push yeah. of mm. some, in some field in France somewhere going to crazy lengths to find out even just how they died. Um, and it, yeah. It's as with Geralt becoming a father figure, it's something for them to bond over. It's something that he, he, he maybe wouldn't have understood as much as he does now. And even as recently as like, two years ago, he would have been sad still. It's still Eskel, still his friend, but he wouldn't have it wouldn't have hit him as deep what Vesemir is saying here about taking care of someone and wanting to know what happened. It maybe even motivates Geralt even more. Yeah, I really don't want to find myself in this spot. I don't want to be weeping over a child body. Geralt wasn't there. Vesemir would be in a much worse spot. Geralt is 
a big crutch for Vesemir mm. in that moment. I feel like he's not mm. only giving him an emotional support, but he's also there for giving his wisdom too. Like it is ceremonial to have the wolf, the symbol of their school, the symbol that they wear on their Witcher medallion until death. Obviously, eat Eskel and take him. They go back into the wild, but I think it's really important for Geralt to be there, offering emotional support to Vesemir. Witchers aren't supposed to feel emotion, but clearly, this mm-hmm. is a situation where. Yeah. Oh, forget it. I yeah. mean, please. They these people are more do. emotional than most <laughs> high school. Like, it's... <laughs> What do y'all think of this moment where Geralt finds the garment in the ceiling? I thought it was puzzling, interesting, but odd. Yeah, I I, I thought that was actually staged weirdly. It, It felt very dramatic. Like he sees this thing hidden in the wall and it's deep in there. And I'm like, oh, my God, is it like a piece of Eskel or something that's like trying yeah. to grow towards Siri or something? And it's just this scarf or a piece of Cintron cloth. And I, I read it as the second time as an indication that Geralt is starting to understand why Siri is so hellbent on training and hurting herself and being illogical in her pursuit of, I guess, physical strength. But I, I still think it was maybe framed a little bit more dramatically than it needed to be. I mean, it represents Sintra, right? And Siri loses her home. She loses her family. She loses Mausak. She loses nearly everything. And then by the end of this season, we can't stay here. So it's that this idea of home. And I think Geralt's trying to understand Siri a little bit in that moment. He's like, she's holding on to the past. You know what I mean? He, I think he recognizes that she's trying to move forward. But in, in that moment, he, he realizes his, it's going to be a lot more difficult for her than she realizes. It's like one of those other things. Mm. Her, she's going to really hold on to the past for a while, I think, is what it's signaling. Yeah. I'm not sure this is what they had going for them, but there's the pull, right? Like she's being pulled. She feels the pull towards the forest. She dreams of the leshy pulling on her, grabbing her. And this is this thing is wrapped up in some branches. So it felt like maybe that was what they were going for as part of it. Now, that's not the whole thing. But again, yeah, I'm not sure. Butanesca621 in the chat had a good point here. For once, it's a it's a, also an opportunity for us to compare to something besides Game of Thrones. It says, Vulcans suppress their emotions. They don't actually not have emotions. It's a thing in Star Trek where they said they don't have emotion, but they don't actually not have emotions. They just... Like they say, suppress them, which is similar to Witcher's do. It's partially know, magical. I, I I feel like this is maybe like a, a, a selling <laughs> point. People always say this about Witchers, but the only Witcher we hear actually say it is Geralt, when he's always being like, "I don't have any feelings." So it's I, I don't I, I don't know. I feel like yeah, you're right. We don't really see the cold, emotionless Witcher. Really, that's there isn't. We haven't seen a single example of that. Really, have we? <laughs> We've only seen it for stretches. Geralt's that has been that way for a little while at a time, but not very long on screen, given uh, how much of it is associated with Siri. There's not that much time where he's alone. And, and even when he's with Renfrey, there's plenty of emotion. Like he was super emotional in that. And that's the first episode of the show. Yeah, <laughs> so. I mean, this guy's always on the verge of tears. Let's get real. I mean, <laughs> the, the, one, the, one way, I, the one way we can also look at the, the garment and the roots is that Siri's roots are in Sintra. We know that we're going to be returning there at some point. I said, Nilfgaard is in Sintra. They're occupying Sintra. The roots getting the leshies, tendrils getting closer and closer to Siri. Monsters 
infringing upon that. So I, th- I think it, it's, it represents a lot of things, even though it's a small thing. You know what I mean? Well, I do think it represents series, her kind of emotional tie to Sintra in some sort of way. Yeah, I mean, and there's also, I think, the idea of the past mm-hmm. holding on to Siri, yeah. not just Siri holding on to the past, which will actually take on a very, I mean, we're not even talking about Siri's personal past in, in that sense. We're talking like about the, someone uh, else grasping onto the yeah, idea. Yeah, the cosmic past is holding on to yeah. Siri in a very significant way. And the idea of someone else seeking her out with her roots, it has a much bigger meaning for sure, I think. Yeah, and that's something that is maybe confusing to people and can be maybe even slightly off-putting if you're bored of the whole, like, why doesn't the monster kill her trope? It's got her right there. Like, it's pausing for some unknown reason, which is just a recurring feature of so many movies and shows. But in this case, it's not trying to kill her. <laughs> it actually, it was trying to capture her or whatever. Like, the myriapod thing had her cornered. It was just staring at her. Like, it was then it reached for her with its, like, hand thing instead of trying to stab her which is similar to the Leshy just grabbing her, right? They were trying to take her. They weren't trying to kill her or whatever. So that makes a lot more sense when that's clear. And maybe the first time it isn't super clear, but second time through is like, yeah, well, that's what's happening here. Okay, yeah, they didn't. Because even book readers don't necessarily know that because <laughs> this, like, this stuff isn't in the book. So you're like, wait, what is going on here? It's not that trope. It's, it's they're trying to capture her. They don't want to kill her. That's why they're hesitating because they're not trying to kill her. They're perfectly fine to kill the witchers, but not Siri, not the one with the elder blood. I love that it's a Myriapod because... <laughs> That's a reflection mm-hmm. of the first monster that Siri and Geralt fight together in the Sword of Destiny story, right? Uh, when she's Red Riding Hood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I love that because the snake imagery actually becomes very important for Siri going forward. Yeah. So It's crazy that the yeah. Queen Leshy just gets absolutely wrecked by the Miriam. Yeah, We're really like, okay, <laughs> the Leshy is like an end boss monster and just wrecked like a bunch of witchers. And then this Miriapod just cuts it in half. Oh! All right. That was extremely surprising, right? Look at that thing. It's so majestic and dangerous and powerful. And then just, whoa, it gets cut (laughs) in half. And it's also funny because it's not actually a plot hole, but they say the only way to kill a Leshy is to stab fire into its heart. Now, presumably... That's not actually the only way to kill it. It's just the only way a human can do it. Because if they had the option to tear it in half, (laughs) they might have done that. But, oh, apparently tearing it in half works, too. But we never had the means to do that. You know, it's really funny. Uh, As as, as a Witcher 3 player, I've ventured off into areas where I wasn't supposed to venture off to many times. And a Leshy is usually the one with a red skull and caution sign above it. So I've uh, ventured into areas that have been killed by Leshy (laughs) many a time myself. I feel like... Maybe it's not dead. It's just dismembered, and it'll. I think it's dead. You have to do that to kill it. I mean, Eskel did take its arm off, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> clearly it just did. fell over. And I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I thought it was impressive to be fucking honest. I liked it. Uh, <laughs> it just ripped it. I was like, it was so surprising. That was not expected. I knew, I knew, I knew you were going to react that way because like, me and Mikael watched the season first. And I'm like, what is Aziz going to think of this shit? He's going to like, like torn yeah. in half. Like, you don't expect something that big to be cut in half. Yeah. It was also, it was a little bit like watching like the Meg or something. And it's, ah, there's a bigger shark. <laughs> That thing was creepy, that myriapod thing. That was so, like, it had the body of a centipede thing with fewer legs, but a lot of legs. Weird, like, face. Yeah, that face was was almost, like, humanoid. It It was weird. Yeah, it really communicated how strange this thing was by having it be so oddly looking. It was mutated and made it feel unnatural, like an unnatural monster from somewhere else. (laughs) 
we got lots of really great political moments. We got lots of great stuff that's diving into lore and some of the stuff that really I makes the Witcher books for me. It starts with yeah. Tissaia in that awesome scene. She's making the list of the people who died and it carries over the same confusion that's in the books, but in a different way. Like instead of Geralt being wondering who the 13th name is and instead of Triss being mistakenly thought dead, it's Yennefer that's mistakenly thought dead. It's a similar idea, modified and displayed differently, but it's still very effective. Change that maintained what made that good in the books, I think. I agree with you, Kyle. There's a lot of really good discussions, a lot of good debates, a lot of philosophizing. I thought the Kara Morn stuff was very good in this episode, but arguably this stuff is even mm -hmm. stronger, which it wasn't early on. Like the Yennefer stuff early on, I thought was most people thought it was weaker than some of the other stuff. But here's where it picks up a lot of steam and I think gets a lot more interesting, which we sort of said would happen, right? We Once it gets more of the politics involved is when it gets more interesting and you have all these different really meaningful aspects to it with the fate of races and cultures and nations are, are hanging in the Well, back. we see some really interesting arguments going on. We have the science versus religion kind of thing happening, right? And mm. then we, we see these different power structures. We obviously see men versus women, the power structure of the male mages and the sorceresses going on too. And I really think that's an interesting element because there is some magical things obviously happening, but then we also see the the race thing come up again with Stregzi and stuff too. There's a lot of really strong kind of topics here. And yeah, I guess we should just dive into it. Istrid claims, well, he says he found something, right? And then people are like, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> you. Yeah, you. We sent you there because we didn't want to deal with you, yeah. Dave. And then he lies. He's yeah, no, I'm neutral. I didn't know I was too busy on my work. And then he that he tells the Jennifer later. He's like, actually, <laughs> I lied. <laughs> I totally saw it. But we, doing. we see the power gaming here, where maybe if it wasn't interested in someone like Stregobor or Vilgefort saying this, they might have had a different reaction. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because Stregobor and Vilgefort are obviously up to no good. What's interesting about Stregobor is that. He makes a few good points despite being racist and evil. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to agree with him because he's Stregobor, but <laughs> it's still, you got to acknowledge one or two of these things. He's got this huge prejudice against the elves, but here we see the elves really are pretty murderous and wanting to kill all these humans, not the specific ones he's talking about. But meanwhile, Francesca is on this mission <laughs> to kill like all these people. Yeah, he's not entirely wrong. It's one of those just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. They really are after you. It's a little too bad. There was a really good deleted scene. I encourage you all to watch. Uh, the reason it's relevant here is that Vilgefort accuses Stregobor of rhetoric. Even you can't be stupid enough to believe your own rhetoric that her elven blood is a threat to us. This is where the racism is coming into it. Stregobor has gone from the elves are after us, which is true, to anyone with elven blood is tainted and a threat to us. And we'll literally end the world. That's just now that's just going way too far. And so Vilgefort's, look, do you actually believe your own nonsense here? I, 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 we all think you're just talking, but are, you're starting to think that you actually believe yourself here. And, he's, and he does back down a little bit. But Stregobor, also classist towards Vilgefort, who says, oh, so climbed out of the gutter, talking down to him and all this stuff. And 
Vilgefortz just like just rolls his eyes. He's like, what does that have to do with anything, man? Come on. I'm where I'm at because I earned it. Arguably, it makes me better because it shows I can rise for can pull myself out of that start. I didn't have the head start you had, and I still got this far. But the other really interesting thing in this scene is Stregobor, while arguing for Yennefer's elven blood being a problem, it's not a very good argument. He does make one really interesting point, which is that, well, how come Yennefer wasn't destroyed by using fire magic? It's like, well, huh? It's like, well, how come she survived that if she's not unnatural, huh? And that's not, it doesn't prove his point, but it is a good question. Well, yeah, well, what happened? What's the deal with that fire magic, bro? Like, why is she? Of course, we know she lost her powers, and maybe we have different theories as to why that happened, but she did lose her powers, and fire magic is important this whole aspect is a very important plot lines important mikal to say a leverage is vilgi here as uh vilgi here let's get into vilgi we always say stregzi vilgaforce's <laughs> hunch to save the continent and his hunches about the Nilf guardian forces yeah i mean it's very much like you can see the new guard positioning themselves against the old guard and it is very mm. interesting that I don't think there's any real suggestion of this in the books that Tissaia and Vilgefortz are a couple because it takes someone who we have, or at least I like very much in Tissaia and puts her on the same team as Vilgefortz, who I don't think it's a spoiler to say he's she could do better. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's very interesting how Vilgefortz is very good at saying exactly what needs to be said in one particular mm. moment. And because he's against Stregobor, there's a certain amount of satisfaction to that. But you also know that it's going to come back to bite everyone in the ass. And then it's so frustrating. The scene where, I mean, I love Yennefer and Tissaia's reunion. I think it's really beautiful and like has very much a almost vibes of Geralt and Ciri meeting at the end of season one. But she's okay. Can you just let my boyfriend take the credit and I'm like, okay, huge red flag right there. Multiple flags. The second you said that you should have been like, actually, I just heard it coming out of my mouth and there's a problem here. But she doesn't. She just is going along with this idea. And it's interesting. She's that, bought in. Yeah. She's fooled. Yeah. I, I had a thought that he's really good at reading the room and then taking charge of what the room wants. Yeah. And that's how he positions. That's how he gets to be in charge. He just takes everyone's anger and takes the lead. I'm the tip of the spear on what we're most importantly trying to do here. And that's where you get this. Yeah, let's let Vilgefortz take the lead. It's important right now to let him get the glory so he can get this. Oh, and Yennefer figures it out right away. It's like, oh, you two are making a play to take over, aren't you? <laughs> she, she, I love how quick she is because she's so cynical. She always sees through these things. <laughs> it's not just cynical. But I think yeah. he's a true politician. Yennefer realizes yes. that. And a true politician, someone like Vilgefortz, will continue to make those kinds of plays and they will continue to gain power at any means necessary. It's about them staying in power and gaining power. And that's the problem with Vilgefortz. You can see him swell with that. You see Tissaia giving him confidence and you see the confidence that he's getting. And it's a negative thing. It's not good. People like that also know how to use the right powerful people mm -hmm. to say it. I mean, obviously she and Stregobor are not the same faction, but it's hard to tell exactly how high up she is. I assume she's pretty high up, mm -hmm. but attaching his wagon to her horse, that's a really smart move. Yeah. And inveigling himself to the point where she is, you know what, let's let him take credit for the stuff that actually I encouraged you to do. 
her speech to Yennefer mm. before the fire magics. Let go. Use all your power. Stop being restrained and whatever. And now it's, let's just be restrained and pretend that Vilcor is still <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, totally. Part of being a really good politician is Dragobor isn't mm. a good politician. Dragobor is, I don't know, he's a gadfly or an He's less logical. Killer. He's more emotional, you can tell. Yeah. He, he is more, yeah, he's more dogmatic mm. and paranoid, whereas, Vil- whereas Vilgefortz is a lot more cool and collected and, and, like I said, reads the room really well. I think, and that's why he is wary of Yennefer and why he won't go after her openly and why he will talk to Stregobor certain ways in private, but in public he speaks differently. Because Yennefer is the savior. Everybody recognizes that. So Stregobor going after her for his racism when she's the savior of the realm is bad politics, right? You don't go after a hero. And Vilgefortz realizes that. He doesn't actually see her as a hero. He sees her as an obstacle because he's trying to take over, but he has to play the game and and treat her like a hero because that's what everybody else sees her as. So you see these two opposite approaches where Vilgefortz, like you said, is playing the politics. He's playing all the angles. He's not pissing anybody off except for the guy that everyone's pissing off. And that's the guy that he focuses on because everyone's mad at Stregobor. So he takes the lead in, in pushing back <laughs> against Stregobor. Yeah. But sort of letting Tissaia be the even more aggressive one because Vilgefortz is trying to be the leader the in the middle and listen to everything. And yeah, he's just playing those roles really smartly and cynically. Felix Stregobor used yeah. to be a Vilgefortz, yeah. but he, he is so much the old guard. And yeah. I think that it, I'm just realizing now that him talking about the story that he tells of Falco when he, he was there is maybe part and parcel of representing just how old the old guard is. Yeah. It is very long standing, and the new guard does not even have to be that new for it to be a considerable change. I, I, I yeah. do agree with Stregobor in a way, too, that he's worried that some of this new guard is moving very quickly. You can see Vilgefortz, like, I think Stregobor does re- recognize that, but obviously Stregobor is not a good person, so you don't want to kind yeah. of align yourself <laughs> with those kind of things, but Vilgefortz is very intelligent because you were talking about rank a little bit, Mikhail. Tissaia, she's obviously high-ranking, but she's still not, she's still probably like fourth or fifth. There's still probably like four or five males that rank above her, but Vilgefortz, if he ties himself to Sisea, he's probably higher ranking than her because he's a male. He's being very intelligent because he knows she's the highest ranking sorceress. It's a really interesting play that he's making. Yeah. Mm. It's funny too because he's wary mm. of Yennefer and he should be wary uh-huh. of Vilgefortz. <laughs> that's the one that's really... The- well, the thing is Yennefer has one of the best bullshit radars on the continent. She can sniff that shit out. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Vilgef- she has no patience for politics, but understands it really well. She sussed out all the same things Vilgefortz did and just as quickly, but she has a much different want out of it. She doesn't want to take yeah. over. She doesn't care about that. She has much different goals, which is part of why Vilgefortz is, okay, well, maybe you're not a threat to me after all. When she's, yeah, I don't care, and he senses that her power is gone or something like that, he's like, oh, well, I'm just going to casually forget about you then because I was worried about you, but now... Looks like you're not a threat, <laughs> especially with to say on my side. Yennefer, though, is she's not necessarily dangerous because she is powerful. I mean, that's definitely part of it. And that's yeah. what mages and then respond to. But she's dangerous because she's not a politician. She's like an anti-politician. Mm, she yes. comes in there like an absolute wrecking ball. And if she had stayed, I mean, like we, we see how she leaves. She wants to tear down structures and like yeah. the structure of Thanet. <laughs> she has personal beef with. I don't even know if that's something she's conscious of at the time, but like the way, even the way she makes her entrance into that meeting, where it's just like the game board has been toppled over. All the pieces yeah. you guys are putting in place, 
don't matter anymore because Yennefer is here and she's just going to kick the pieces everywhere. You um, don't even get to keep your list of names. <laughs> you haven't had to throw that away. <laughs> even that. Well, look at what they uh, tried to force. <laughs> and, yeah. and she, like she jokes about this. She's like, I just finished writing that. So you walked in today. You know? and, and look, <laughs> five oh, minutes. <laughs> and look at what they try to force her to do at the end of the episode. She doesn't comply. It's, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? That's the way we see more of this politics go on. And obviously, Kahir is someone of a more grayer character, which we uh, get to come over the next couple episodes, which I'll have to say, here's one of my top three or four favorite characters in the box. (laughs) (laughs) It's neat, this karmic treatment of one prisoner gets treated a certain way, then gets treated a certain way, then they get treated a certain way. Yeah. Ooh. Another example of Stregobor's hypocrisy as a way to segue into this other topic. We have when when Stregobor captures Mm -hmm. Yennefer, he's, he, takes her captive and starts reading her mind. And then he's like, oh, I was just trying to protect the school. I'm trying to protect our organization. The second time in this episode, he says something like that. Because in the class with Istrid, when Istrid walks in on his class and argues with him, you know, I've always tried to protect our institutions, to protect you. And he's looking at the students and Istrid gives him the really dude look. He gives him like the, are you kidding me, dude? <laughs> As you're sitting here saying, we can't let elven blood on our council. Like, are you really protecting us by saying things like that? Your version of protecting us involves your very virulent strain of racism. <laughs> yeah, I, in my notes, I wrote, honestly, fucking Stregobor. And I feel like that's what <laughs> Istrid is thinking. <laughs> Yeah, right. He is. But on the other hand, Istrid's being dishonest, too. He's obviously not as bad as Stregobor. It's funny how many of these arguments are between total hypocrites. They're both accusing each other of hypocrisy and they're both right. Politics. (laughs) Totally. Stregobor calls Falca, quote, mutt of a girl who cried death to kings when Vridank spurned his elven mother, which is like quite an interpretation of Falca. Citation on the other hand, needed. Yeah, citation needed. Calls for a mind. That's pretty bad. He, it's really hard to argue with him, even though he's clearly wrong about some of the stuff, because unlike most of the people arguing with him, he was there, right? He was actually there. Apparently, he, he lost his hands, which is, whoa, how do you even cast spells like that? But <laughs> ignoring that part. He says, yeah, I was there when Falca destroyed Myrtha and all the mages in it. So he's seen mages get slaughtered. So maybe there's one or two percent of trauma in there that is leading some of this. Obviously, we don't excuse anything he's done, but that would mess you up living through that. It would maybe make you paranoid about something like that happening again. I think the problem with Stregobor is the problem with all political extremists, which is that they can't isolate. They identify maybe something that could be a real problem but they don't isolate it to the actual source mm. of the problem they then say that everyone who's this is the problem Blood, kill anyone yeah. who mm. is around that also and like yeah. you know the, it, it goes back to his destruction of all the girls who were born during the eclipse or whatever it can't possibly be that like no this is probably fine and you're just seeing coincidences where there aren't any But it's driven by this idea that if I see something wrong in a girl or a girl who potentially might threaten to destroy some institution, which is really the way to strike forth heart. So that's how you get that kind of killing spree, really. You're right. He's blaming a group for something that if you have any association with this group, you must be part of the problem, which is totally ridiculous, right? There's no nuance to that at all. And viewing things that way leads to more destruction because you just... Blamed a bunch of innocent people. So you created a a, a reason for them to be mad at you. And thus the cycle 
and then those people become collateral damage and uh we see yeah well very much like what's going to happen at the end of the season with some certain elven sorceress in a certain town full of children oh yeah yep yep certainly we're gonna we're, we're gonna have a big talk about that one there's some great back and forth here. Some lines. Istrid says, what are you saying? Yennefer is related to Falca? And Stregvor is such a jerk. Of course not. A historian should know bloodlines better. Oh. He's like, I wasn't saying that. I was saying you were saying that. But he just, <laughs> political. Very. Uh, that was clever. I, I appreciate that because that is how a lot of people speak in like public discourse when it's when a lot of people are watching and they're trying to one up each other. Any little opportunity to make the other person look bad, even if it's not deserved. Like uh, Stregvor is... I gotta say, he's a good character. As, as awful as he is, he's a good. He's got some character. good one-liners for sure. He knows how to wound you with yeah. words. Yeah, he's not dumb. He's a yeah, he's a pretty good villain, and I think he's also distracting from the bigger. Oh, villains, yeah. right, that's another thing that he's a cover. He's cover for other villains to hide behind and be like, "Look at how bad." Because you have these is. things you dislike Meanwhile. about him, like ra- his <laughs> racist tendencies. But the, yeah, right, like that's effective, yeah. right? And a really effective way to make the audience hate him is like this guy is racist, like blatantly, like horribly, like in ways that we can see that you can recognize that happened in the real world in modern. It's almost times, like a right. You see this kind of attitude. It's almost like Joffrey realized that he's dangerous but then there's someone like Cersei who's infinite in, can it be or Tywin someone that's infinitely, infinitely more powerful that can use their actual brains and you know, I'm not saying that Stregobor yeah. can't but there's other people out there that are willing to possibly go even further than Stregobor would for certain things and that's for and that's scary yeah. and dangerous I agree because like you said with the example of Joffrey is like, that's the example of evil that stumbles over itself on its way to do yeah. evil. Whereas someone like Stragobor or maybe Vilgefort or someone else, maybe Emperor M here is really effective yeah. with their evil. They have it's like an administrative skill. They're right? calculating three, four, <laughs> five moves ahead. They're trying to calculate themselves ahead yeah. instead of just like this short term gains. Seems like Stregobor's maybe focused a little bit more on the short term and other people are maybe focusing a little bit more on the kind of the long game. Well I mean again I think it's just Stregobor yeah. is playing yeah, on definitely. an older playing field. He's he is just not he's not playing on he doesn't see the board in the modern light. He's still very much stuck in an older viewpoint because obviously he has to have yeah. seen the, yeah. the, the way the wind blowing correctly like he, you don't get to that point of power and stay there for as long as he has without being extremely powerful and ruthless and strong and whatever sure. all all that stuff that's his but, blind spot that's what you're trying to say is that's his blind spot a little yeah, bit yeah i mean i think he's just dealing with older problems and yeah. whereas vilgefortz is seeing a, a very different set the of future, problems yeah Back in the day, it was just elves versus humans. You could say that was how it was, but that is not how it is anymore, in part because the the races are commingled so much, not just in living, but in actual blood. There's half-elves, quarter-elves, eighth-elves, and vice versa all over the place. Literally, the first non-prologue chapter of Blood of Elves discusses this concept of how, well, we've all been, we've been mingling for centuries. It's only recently that this has become a problem for some of you have started to point to this and s- complain. But it's actually been happening for centuries without problem. It's only recently people started to call it out. And why? Because it's not a real problem. And I I appreciated that. It was one of the things that drew me to the series. I started Blood of Elves first. I didn't realize that The Last Wish was the first book. So I read that first chapter. It's like the first thing I read. So I was like, wait, I'm in the wrong spot. Another string, Stregobor says that is a general truism that's probably more true about him than other people. He says... 
The only thing we can be sure of is that no one is ever what they seem, which coming from an illusionist is, yeah, well, (laughs) true. (laughs) Yeah, and I'll just shout out to Honest Trailers because they focused a little bit on the bath scene and were like, Anya Tarlatra got the Amelia Clark, my eyes are up here deal (laughs) on a new contract. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of that, the bath scene, which was not risque at all, it was like, okay, good. Like you, you have this note here about season one. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I've the seen a lot more about, of them. Yeah. I guess we could just say. <laughs> yeah. Now everyone's pretty much had a bath. Has Yasker had a bath yet? Because uh, he has a bath. Gerald later had his season, season one bath. Okay, yeah, you're right. He does. That's right. So everyone has baths, right? Because Siri gets a bath at Nevillains, and these ladies have a bath here. So yeah, baths for all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the important line in that one is they're like, yeah, well, what's lost is lost. And Yennefer's who's sitting there with no powers. I hope not. <laughs> Let's not say that. Let's say the other thing. Let's say some <laughs> things that are lost can be recovered, please. Who was the fourth mage in that one? There was Triss, Yennefer, Sabrina, and someone else. I don't know who that was. Anyone know? No. I was trying to figure that out, but there wasn't many clues and it didn't seem super important. But whatever. Yeah, I don't even think she had a line. So. We, well, we do. <laughs> it's just fourth. fourth well, we do know that Sabrina and Triss are important. So that's important characters. Sure. Sabrina popping her face up again will be interesting, too. Yeah, uh, Sabrina's interesting for sure. Solution. And of course, this is set up with the scene ahead of time when Yennefer passes by Cahir's cell and they have their interaction, which obviously is important to set this up. I didn't love this scene, this parts of it that are good, but I, it's just not that believable to me that they would be able to escape. I understand that the the lack of magic is important to have that as a thing that can exist in this world. Zones with no magic. I don't have a problem with that. And, and I'm glad they set up that Yennefer knows how to fight because that was already done. It's not like, where has she learned how to swing an axe? That's already been done. So we're, we've already established that. That's fine. Just no one chases them. They just get away. I don't know. I mean, the fact that you can just <laughs> knock down those huge pies, she just has to go like, boom. And then, it, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I will say I was actually very tense the first time I watched the scene because it was like I'd, I'd heard that things were different in the season, and I was like, I don't think they're gonna kill Kihir, but I guess they could. And then, so I was like, the whole time I was she like, got so excited after this too because she messaged me, she's Jennifer like, Kihir. <laughs> <laughs> and I, was like, yeah. I, was like, I was like, yes, I'm so excited. I'm the first one that watched this. <laughs> yeah, so that was very exciting. I agree with you, though, that that did that moment did have tension. I was a little pretty skeptical that they would kill K here, but I was like, yeah, it's possible. I can't be 100% confident here. Them being together, that worked. As I'll criticize how they got together, but they had some good dialogue, some good lines. I like where it went. Certainly. Yeah, no, I, I still don't really um, get why Yennefer was like, yeah. well, come on. I was like, oh, I don't, whatever. <laughs> Fine. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The, their positions in life are very interesting, right? We're like, we have Kahir questioning his faith, much like Frangilla is. And we have Yennefer questioning the, the state of the government and the rulers and all of this. And okay, Yennefer realizes that she's really not that all important in the grand scheme of things to all of these people who are playing politics. And Kahir's, well, <laughs> I'm going to be beheaded here by the Northern Kingdoms. Am I really that important to the White Flame and all of that? So there is these big questions happening within Kahir and Yennefer at this point. Where, which kind of path do we take? And I think that's when we see Yennefer make a big decision, obviously. That's what I think it makes this so interesting because we think that they're from 
opposite sides of the playing field is a good and bad, right? Sintra versus Nilfgaard. But yeah. it's much, it's not really like that. Nilfgaard is bad because they want to conquer everything, but it's more complicated than just Nilfgaard is evil and Sintra is good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely. Will say I disagree with um, you, Kyle. I think I I still think that here is very resolute here. Like he, what does he say? If Emir requires me, he says, "If the white flame asks for my sacrifice, well, I'm, I'm not. Well, I'm not saying that blindness that we find our. I'm not saying that he's not resolute. I'm just saying he's like, well, I'm gonna die here. That's pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. he was expecting yes, to die. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I, I think it's important to like note that this doesn't phase him as much as other things will later. No. Yeah, that's true. Death, that happens. That's part of why he's accepted that much, but he cares about his faith mm-hmm. more than he cares about his life. Like, death so, would... Yeah. Part of why he's risen death, so death, high. Death, <laughs> death would be easier than him being stripped of all of his ranks, for example. That would be... Him being yeah. demoralized is much worse, I think, for him as kind of who he is as a character. We have this setup from the politicians here. We have Foltest and Vizimir. Meeve is there, which is cool. She doesn't have a line till until later, not this episode. But I like seeing those characters and, and Foltest and, and Vizimir to have a conversation. Vizimir says Yennefer is worth keeping an eye on, according to Dijkstra, right? He says his spy master says that. And Foltest like, they all need to be watched. <laughs> Look around. <laughs> He's not wrong. <laughs> And Faltest is right. They just elected Vilgefort. Vilgefort leads the ceremony, which shows the progression of events. Vilgefort has won to say, and to say, and Vilgefort's plan has worked. He's in charge now. He's leading the ceremony. So there you go. That has progressed. Yennefer running away doesn't make her look less guilty, does it? <laughs> it makes her look more guilty. And then she says, I'm saving me. But you had a question here. I think this is your note, Mikal, but or maybe it's you, Kyle, whichever, about... No, it's Mikal. Acts like, yeah, Deathless Mother's in her head and wants her to go through with this. And what does she gain? Why does Deathless Mother want her to kill Kay here? My only thought is maybe it's because the Deathless Mother knows that M here is also after the same thing. They all want series. They're competing for series. So if K here is killed, maybe that slows down their progress. But K here, I don't know, because K here is the Black Knight that was after her. If she knows that, which is entirely possible, like series dreams keep repeating this. I don't know if they're in series dreams and have know this for some reason or have been in K here's head, which to say it couldn't get into K here's head. So it's a little tricky how this information got out there, but it's not like a plot hole. I just don't know. <laughs> so I think that's the answer, but I'm not super confident in that. Does that satisfy your question or is that not really what you were thinking about? No, it, it, it's definitely a good theory. I sort of wonder if it's just like the Deathless Mother is trying to get her to make the bad, easy choices. Because theoretically, if what Yennefer wants is to be part of the life, at, then this would theoretically be the way mm. there. Although mm, it okay, might yeah. also indicate that that actually probably would have, it, it might have been used mm. as like Stregobor being like, look how easily she chopped off this innocent man's head. And she saw that coming. I think you're right. I think that's a really good insight because as we've said several times, she's really astute with the politics. She just doesn't play along. And so she probably understood that having her do it would have some political consequences and would be used by her enemies to make her look bad, which I think is part of why she tried to sneak out the night before. But Istrid stopped her. He's like, look, Stregobor's watching. He's going to see you leave. He's going to stop you from leaving, which even more probably confirms to her that she was right, that Stregobor was going to manipulate this and use this against her. Well, she's screwed on either yeah. way, right? That's what makes their play even stronger because either choice that Yennefer makes, even even though she was the hero of the battle of Sodden, she's completely fucked here. 
Yeah, totally. And it's so awkward for Yennefer because she wants to escape and Istrid's helping her. But here he is. He obviously wants something from her. He's obviously still in love with her. And he reveals that he lied about Nilfgaard's intentions. Or he's like, by the way, I lied about this. And she's like, well, crap. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> what do I do with all this information? Here you are trying to help me. But now you kind of suck too. But actually, you're useful. But actually, I'm trying to get away from here. So thanks for that. But damn, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> Sintra, <laughs> yeah, because that's is set up by the scene in Sintra. Because you see what's happening. It's probably not the capital, because but it might be. I'm not clear on where it is. It's some, but because it, it's it's not all burned, right? And and there's this giant monolith. When they do the overhead shot, just huge, right in the center of the city, which is why I'm not clear on exactly where this is. And that could be relevant later, this giant monolith. The fact that monoliths have become important, you would think that a really big one might be extra important. So uh, either way, it's cool, even though we don't know exactly what's going on. So Francesca believes that this is where Ithlin wants them. Philavandrel, he's still not sure about that. But he's going along with it, as we talked about last time. And she's admits to Fringilla later that this was the Deathless Mother, not Hithlin. And there's this Commander Hake guy, the Nilfgaardian, who argues against all these elves coming in. He's, who wrote, he's the Stragobor of the South here. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's a good note. <laughs> we get a sense of what her goal is. She wants Dol Blathana, which is a pretty neat, tie into what we've already learned which is that's where edge of the world takes place that's where we first meet philavandrel where there's the so-called silver towers which i believe is more metaphorical than there's actual silver towers but still that was their kingdom that he lost he was complaining about and so this is what they're aiming to get back so that's all very consistent and frangilla's faith is explored further not just the prophecy stuff but she believes or at least acts like she believes i think she does believe in it that Spreading the worship of the white flame and spreading Nilfgaard's rule will improve the lives of people in general. Like anyone who comes into Nilfgaard's rule, that nation will prosper. I think she actually believes that. It's not just a speech to her. What do you all think about that? You think she's a true believer in just in the politics as well as the magic? Or is it just uh, one serving the other or something else? I think a lot of these kinds of beliefs are both genuine and self-serving in a certain way. I don't Mm. think she would necessarily recognize if it was self-serving, but extreme belief comes from something. I think that's usually personal, but I I, like, I don't think that that Mm. makes her like dishonest or anything. I I, I do think that she believes in what she's doing. She's like Melisandre, right? Like it's it's, Melisandre Mm. is a true believer, but she's also like probably been conditioned to be that for certain reasons and things she's experienced it's a little bit of both i think, I think we should, we should get like a a, yeah. a a jar to toss a coin every time we make a game of thrones <laughs> we've made a lot for sure <laughs> that'd be a lot of coins yeah. <laughs> toss a coin <laughs> to your references <laughs> <laughs> when we talk game of thrones oh <laughs> <laughs> During the ceremony, there's a moment where where Jennifer's like, "Where's Triss?" and they're and she's they're like, "She's been called away." And well, we know where she's been called away to care Morhen. And when they're having mushrooms at the meal, and they're like, "No mushrooms this time," and tr- tr- and and they're like, "Don't talk about the mushrooms." No, we don't talk about the mushrooms to outsiders. And Triss is like, 
looking around. What are you guys obviously trying to conceal from me very poorly right now? (laughs) (laughs) And it's the like the witcher mushrooms or whatever that apparently she can eat those, but not some of the other herbs that witchers can take, which brings me to my next anecdote. They have that talk about how she's getting hurt during on the pendulum and how he says, look, if one of us gets hurt, we can just fill them with Veratrum, Spurge and Hawthorne, take a nap and you're fine. We can't do that to you. We can't give you those elixirs because she hasn't been through the trial of the grasses and all that. It's not just because you're a girl and because I'm trying to be protective of you. It's you literally don't have this extra physicality that is too dangerous for us to put you through because we it shouldn't be done to anyone really but it was done to us it's in the past we can't change that but we're not doing that again or well we're going to get close to doing that again but Geralt's very opposed to it and that quote is from the actual first story from the the witcher story number one the mixture which helped the witcher gain full control of this body i'm pretty sure that's a (laughs) misprint The the mixture which helped the Witcher gain full control of his body was chiefly made up of Veratrum, Stromonium, Hawthorne, and Spurge. The other ingredients had no name in any human language. So they dropped Stromonium, but it's Veratrum, Spurge, and Hawthorne again. And you know how we love our Spurge. (laughs) We certainly do. I think we just love that Aziz loves herb lore. Let's just stay that. (laughs) Yeah. You may not love herb lore, but you may love that I love herb lore. (laughs) Exactly. Tris saying, I'm not on to say as plaque, which was a, uh, a nod to the books where she is on the plaque, but mistakenly, because she obviously doesn't die. And then my favorite funny line of the episode was when Yennefer is trying to sneak out and she's already been like bumped into Cahir and bumped into Stregobor and now then Istrid. What is it with men lurking about this place? <laughs> I like that also. Yeah, what is it with you people just like hiding in the shadows, stalking me? Damn it, cut that out. Okay, so last time we ta- we joked about how Phil Evangel curses that lying bard. But what we forgot to mention was that lying bard was equipped with a lute that he sung all those songs on by Phil Evandrel <laughs> in the Edge of the World story. So uh, maybe if you'd given him a worse lute, those stories wouldn't have spread as much. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. The only thing I want to say is that Siri is a breakout star in Continental Ninja Warrior. <laughs> Continental Ninja Warrior. <laughs> she already has a crowd watching her, already has a following. Yeah. <laughs> Even her blood. If someone wanted to intercut that with the two commentary guys from Ninja Warrior, I wouldn't be mad. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Ninja Warriors, everyone is after Siri hiding in the shadows. Uh, a, little, a little bit of an homage to Shard of Ice. We uh, weren't sure if we were going to get some of those kind of inklings in uh, the second season as we can't get all the short stories, but it was uh, some of the tone we got from, uh, which is really nice. What did you guys think about that? Yeah, pretty cool. I mean, I was really pleasantly surprised to get Shard of Ice stuff. It wasn't like, it wasn't Shard of Ice, but it had a lot of elements to it. The sewers, the Zoogle, the Istrid Geralt stuff. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I I like that. And it spread out over a couple episodes too. We could do some Istrid stuff too, which kind of ties in with it too. Which is And the unicorn reference in a couple of episodes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, That's so neat. But this one was a bit more of a surprise because in episode one, we for sure knew we were getting great at yeah. Podcast a surprise? 
on Facebook. If you want to come join our community, come hang out with us there. We do memes. We do all sorts of announcements there. We do fun threads. We usually do a couple of different threads before we're going to be doing a podcast. And that's where you can come join our community and come chat with us and hang out. So thumbs up to everyone. Had a lot of fun tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, uh, for joining us. Bye. Bye.